listening to the podcast of Striving Minds Network. Join us as we shed light on mental health topics rarely discussed because of stigma. We are not a substitute for diagnosing and counseling, but rather an open platform to make mental health conversations a thing. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in again to the podcast at Striving Minds, where we're making mental health conversations a thing. My name is Esther Gomez, your host. I am a registered mental health counselor intern in the state of Florida, and this podcast is intended as a mental wellness conversation starter. Today, I have invited Kalima Wills. She is founder and owner of Serenity Mental Health, and she is going to be talking about some topics that are often left unheard, and I would like to introduce you to her now. Hello, everybody. I hope everyone is doing well. This is Kalima Jackson-Wills here, and I am the owner of Serenity Mental Health and Wellness Services. Esther, thank you so much for having me today. Usually before we get into the topics, I like letting our listeners know where you're from Mm -hmm. and if mental health was a topic of discussion when you were growing up and how that looked like. Do you mind sharing? Sure. So I am born and raised here in the United States. I am Black and or African-American. I'm actually half uh, Antiguan. My father is from Antigua. And so I grew up in New York here, you know, in the United States. I grew up in New York. And now I'm currently residing in Central Florida in the Orlando area. I moved here about 2017. And so you asked about the the mental health in my culture, right? It was not talked about, um, especially in the Black community, in the Black household. It was either you used prayer if you were, you know, maybe of a Christian background or had a religious uh, practice or you were just expected to be strong and kind of just deal with whatever was was going on with you mentally. So it really wasn't talked about in the Black household much, hardly at all. And as far as mental health, um, in your family, if you would like to share, did, did anyone show signs of having mental health issues or whatnot? Absolutely. When I look back, um, there was a lot of substance abuse in my family background. So that's a sign right there that there was some mental health issues going on, right? They used alcohol and drugs as a way to cope um, with life's disappointments and life circumstances. So that was kind of, you know, I didn't know that then growing up. But of course, when I, you know, got over the age of 18, it was very, very clear that there was some mental illness going on. Also in the black culture, you can find a lot of secrecy in terms of who's struggling with what. So you might have, so what that might look like is you might have aunts and uncles and cousins, right? That are going through mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and people keep that under wraps. They try to hide it as much as possible from other people in the family. Right. So you just one minute would see uncle so-and-so looking okay. And then the next minute, not looking okay. And so um, there's a lot of uh, secrecy, I feel, uh, in the the African-American culture 
where it's like, even if you are struggling, just you can't let anybody know. How does it come to light or does it ever come to light? It doesn't. I mean, people end up either, you know, passing away, you know, going to jail or just kind of living from couch to house, couch, home to home. And it's still not talked about, if that makes sense, right? So it's like, they they just don't like to talk about it. I feel like more now, right, in the last, you know, five years, maybe, the conversation comes up more in the Black culture, right? Because mental health is being kind of talked about more in general. But growing up, oh, no. You would just see and hear, oh, you know like I said, uncle so-and-so or auntie so-and-so or, or cousin, they don't have necessarily a place to live, right? They're always at so-and-so's house or, you know, this family member's house or this friend's house. Or you might even witness them under the influence of a substance, but you don't know what that substance is. You don't know if it's alcohol. You don't know if it's some other type of drug. Um, so back in the day, I mean, you would just see the effects, but it still would not be talked about. I just feel like maybe in the last five to 10 years, it's talked about a lot more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You personally, like you being exposed to that, did it allow you to cope differently or the same? I feel like I coped differently because I didn't have substance abuse issues per se, right? But there's definitely some maladaptive coping mechanisms that I think we all have, right, when we're faced with stress um, or we're faced with our own um, struggles. So you can kind of go back in that bloodline and you can see where you're very similar to some of the people, right, in your family that may have had um, mental illness. So I didn't pick up the substance abuse habit, but there were other things, right, that I did or did not do as a form of coping. Like I developed the strong woman syndrome until eventually I broke, right? And I had to get my own therapy and I had to go through my own healing process. But at first it was like, yeah, we're, we're strong. We work hard, we get educations, we get degrees, we have really good jobs, but on the inside, we're just, we're falling apart. Right. But we gotta, you know, keep it together. So that's one of the things that I adapted for sure um, because that's what all the other women in my family did. Right. And then even in your own healing process, what made you decide to get into the mental health field? I think it was seeing the types of things that I was seeing within my family and within the Black African-American community, to be honest. It was something that I was always just hyper aware of and hypersensitive to. I feel like I was always that child that kind of knew something was like off or something wasn't right as it related to my experience with other people. Um, but I think the defining moment too was when my first kind of career path out of you know high school and college was working in corporate America. And I'm just going to say it, right? There was a lot of dysfunction um, in terms of how people treated one another, um, how they lived their life. I'll, I'll just leave it at, at that. And I was like, there, there needs to be more emphasis around 
people not just performing on the outside, but having their their inner man is what I like to call it intact. And so I was just always kind of just driven to things related to our mental well-being. I was always one of those girls that was like, I don't mind having nice bags and nice clothes and all this stuff, but if my soul isn't right or my mind isn't right, that really doesn't matter as much. I want to have it all. Like I want to, you know, look good on the outside and also feel good on the inside. And so I've just always been one of those kinds of kind of woman, right? That wanted to have both. Um, and I've seen a lot of people that just had the one side. They were successful on the outside, but on the back end, they were still depressed, severely depressed, um, anxious, right? Full of anxiety and, you know, unfortunately abusing substances. Um, but if you would look at them, you, you'd never know. So this kind of like what you see in the, you know, what you see in the light is different than what you, you, you see them doing in the dark. And so that kind of just really, I feel like that was really the reason why I wanted to do something about it and help people and, and normalize it and make it okay. And how long have you been in the field? So I've only been in the field about three years, but I did my undergraduate studies in like psychology and stuff because I was just always intrigued with the mind and how the mind works and why do we do the things that we do. And then in, I know you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago that you've always been interested in like the inner man, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In the inner man, I'm sure that you too work on the inner woman. Um, what, what's the population that you serve in helping others fix, I guess, their inner mm-hmm. selves? Yeah, so the population that I serve is from about 17 up. Um, 17 was the pivotal age for me in my journey. Um, and so that's kind of like the age range, uh, the, the lowest age range that I work with. So I would say like 17, you know, right up to 40 to 50 years old. Is there a specific niche um, that of the kinds of people that you serve as far as um, your preferred, you know, presenting issues? Yeah, so my uh, target population and the issues that they they deal with um, has to do a lot with loss. Um, and that could be, you know, loss by way of losing like a parent, a mom, a caregiver, right? Someone that held an important role in their life. Or just loss of relationships, whether that's divorce, friendships, job loss. So I'd like to say that I specialize in grief and loss. But most of the time when we hear that word of, you know, grief and loss, we think about death. Um, But it comes in so many um, other ways. So I feel like that's the kind of like that primary issue that they come to me with. But then, of course, through the therapeutic process, it opens up to we end up learning that the reason why the loss and the grief affects us the way that it does is because there's not a firm identity in terms of who we are in place. And so I do a lot of inner man work in that sense um, because there's a direct correlation in terms of the magnitude of how grief and loss affects us and our identity and who we think we are. And so it's fine. It's helping people find their true selves after loss. 
getting back to their original design, you know, desires, goals, dreams, things like that. So it's a lot of identity work that also goes into that. In the identity work, how long, how long does it typically take? I know, you know, that's always a question to ask. That is a good question. A lot of people, um, want to know, you know, well, how long is my process going to look when, you know, they're, they're doing therapy. And so for my clients, I let, I disclose and I let them know that I'm more of a long-term therapist, not a short-term therapist. So, um, when we talk about time, it varies by person, but I would say expect a good year, right? Year to two years. Um, yeah, I would say a year to two years. Um, I'm I'm noticing with with the clients that I've seen before they can really feel like okay, well maybe I don't have to come every week. I can just come you know once a month or something like that because you know therapy can look so many ways. Yeah, weekly, biweekly, once a month. But yeah, I definitely consider myself a long term therapist, especially with the type of approach that I use. And piggybacking off of grief and loss with the targeted population that you work for, Mm -hmm. what is the main reason someone comes to you in association to grief and loss? Is it because of a death or because of a relationship or? I would like to say 80%, 85% is due to a direct like death loss, Um, primarily like mom, father, grandmother, someone who was considered like their caretaker, the person who raised them. So I would say 80 to 85%, if I had to give a number, is has been due to death. And then the other piece is broken relationships or the inability to maintain them, right? So having these meaningful relationships end um, and them wanting to figure out, well, you know, what can I do, right, to better build and maintain relationships? And then some life transition stuff going from, you know, maybe uh, a marriage with kids to being now single or going from uh, one career into another, relocating from one state to another. So anytime we've lost a previous lifestyle, you'll you'll see that too in the other 15 to 20% of people. Can you walk me through what a session looks like or, you know, whether it's the beginning stage, middle or ending stage, are there different, different areas of grieving, different stages? Mm -hmm. So yes, you know, we hear a lot, the seven stages of grief, right? And we know that people move through those, not necessarily in order, Um, And so when in working with me, I like to say that there are three phases. The first phase is the unpacking phase where I'm getting to know, right, the client, they're getting to know me, we're establishing a relationship and they're telling me all their business, right? They're telling me all their background, their history, their childhood, right? Um, It's just really information gathering. So that unpacking phase is really where the the connection happens. 
Um, and then I get to learn about what stage in the process they're at. Um, and even their readiness and their willingness to kind of commit to the therapeutic process and all of that. So definitely um, unpacking phase first. And people say, well, how, you know, maybe how long does that take? That can be anywhere from, you know, two or three sessions to six to eight sessions. It also depends on the frequency in which the client's coming um, to therapy. And then um, in working with me, I like to say that we move into the working phase. And the working phase is where I have a lot of information about what stage you're in in the grief process, kind of what really are your symptoms, what you're struggling with on a day-to-day basis, what's consuming you, right? That thing that made you make the phone call. Um, and then I'm beginning to give a lot of tools and you know, using interventions um, with the client. So that's the working phase. And then hopefully maybe a year later, back to that timeline, right? Maybe almost closer to more year in, you feel more like you're in a maintenance phase where you're able to apply. You've learned how to apply the tools. You've learned which tools and which interventions work for you best. And you're beginning to use them. And so you're feeling much more um, healing has taken place and much more um you're functioning at, at, at a higher level than, than what you were when you first came in. So I like to call it the unpacking phase, the working phase, and then the maintenance phase in, in working with me. And then within these phases, you had mentioned that sometimes in the different stages of grief and loss, like they mm-hmm. may be in a different stage mm-hmm. during these phases. Mm-hmm. Do you mind telling our listeners what the se- seven stages of grief are? Yes, it's shock, denial, you feel anger, sometimes you even want to bargain, like, you know, bargaining might sound like for some people, um, I wish it were me, right, especially if the person, you know, passed away, right, oh, I wish it was me, or I wish I could do something in exchange to get that moment back or that time back, even if it's the person's not passed away, right, um, and the relationship ended, oh, I wish I could have, right, done something different. Then you can feel um, depression, loneliness, right? And so um, those are like the primary ones. And then lastly, the the last stage of grief usually looks like you begin to accept it. You begin to come to a place where um, you're able to, I don't like to use the word move on, but you learn to move forward. I pulled it up here too. Um, Is there ever a time that as the client is moving forward, Mm -hmm. do they ever reach a stage where, or a point in the process where they learn to accept? Yes. And that looks different as far as time-wise for everyone. Um, some clients will kind of maybe get to go from shock to anger or denial and then kind of go back backwards, right? So they'll go from being ang- angry back to almost feeling like they're in denial or shock. So this thing is, it's so unique to the individual, even how they move through the stages. So you don't even necessarily go from 
you know, one through seven or one through five, right? Because some some models show that there's five stages, some show that there's seven. But you can even find yourself being on stage four and then go back to stage two, right? So that can sometimes happen still in the process too. Or a client might think that they have accepted, but maybe they're still maybe in the sadness part or in the depression part of it. And so they haven't fully quite accepted. And do you think that sometimes if they haven't fully accepted, it's because there's resentment still, bitterness? Yes, because the difficult thing with loss is there's usually, it's usually abrupt, I feel. It usually comes in in, in some way where it's, it's just abrupt. Um, even if we know, like, let's say we know a relationship is ending still the moment that it finally ends and, and one person is walking away, it just has this abruptness to it. Um, and so that's where a lot of, there's a lot of things left unsaid or undone and people start ruminating over shoulda, coulda, wouldas, and that too kind of slows up the acceptance process because there's a lot of like what we should have done. And there's a lot of going backwards to things that we may not be able to close out properly. So that's why loss is, is a little bit complicated when we're trying to work, work through it in the therapeutic process. And in working through it, um, I know you, you had mentioned that majority of your clients, it's due to a death mm-hmm. of a loved one. Mm-hmm. Do you ever um come across clients that they are coming because of a death of a loved one and it's really hard for them to process through because they have experienced loss other than death throughout their life yes so a lot of us can relate to having more than one area where we've experienced the loss right so it's almost compounded um, emotions because there's been more than one area. So for example, that some of the clients that might come to me, they may have lost, um, not just their biological parent, um, but then they've lost the person that's raised them or they, they're with the person that raised them, but their biological parent abandoned them. And then now they've passed away, right? So there's this lack of closure and answers that they're unable to get, which then further complicates the grieving process. Because it's like, how do you move through a situation that the person's no longer here? Or you don't have a relationship because that person maybe has, you know, turned you over to a grandma or to a friend of the family to, to, to be cared for. And so you have no relationship. Do you think that these clients may sense or feel rejection? Absolutely. Well, rejection, they feel abandonment. Um, they feel alone. So a lot of like loneliness. And then another one that comes up a lot is this this feeling of just they're not good enough, right? So all of this is under that rejection orphan umbrella, right? But there's these different emotions that come out of it. So not feeling good enough, not feeling wanted. And then what it ends up turning into is an identity issue because then you just begin to feel inadequate, 
like you don't matter or that you're not smart and capable, right, of living a partic- the, the life that you desire or that you, you visualize for yourself. Um, so there's a lot of internalization that goes on that just comes out of, you know, starting with the rejection. So loneliness and then just not feeling wanted and not feeling good enough. For those that yeah. are listening and are experiencing loss, and are grieving right now and can't see a therapist right now, what are some helpful coping mechanisms that they could apply during this process? So I am an avid person for journaling. And I think that um, this can be a time to kind of sit, set aside time to feel the feelings and sit with those feelings and really journal them. Journaling to me is very, very therapeutic because instead of having your thoughts just kind of ruminating in your minds, you're getting it out. I almost call it like data dumping. You are getting out everything that's going on in your mind and you're getting it on paper. And sometimes when we do that, we'll we'll almost find, I wouldn't say solutions, but your mind will kind of just take on its its own thing and and you might find some comfort in some things that you that make you laugh that make you smile as you're kind of writing out how you're feeling so your thoughts will switch a lot is what i'm saying when you're going through the journaling process i would say if they can try to go for a walk walking is really really therapeutic listening to like your favorite music your favorite songs or your favorite podcast such as this one hopefully they'll be listening but really staying connected um and filling your mind and not just having this idle mind where we're just sitting around and not doing anything at all um and then the third thing is to connect to connect with someone in their support system if your feelings and your emotions are getting too high um, try to connect with uh, their support network. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say that when we're dealing with grief and loss, one of the number one things that we want to do is to give ourselves grace. And that simply means being very, very patient with ourselves in the process um, and what that's going to look like. Being kind to ourselves, treating ourselves really, really good when we're we're experiencing, you know, grief and loss because the feelings are so heavy. What we tend to do is we tend to neglect ourselves um, and that can look like, you know, not taking care of our bodies, not eating properly. We can tend to isolate and withdraw from other people. So just practicing a lot of uh, grace and patience and kindness to ourselves while we're going through this grieving process and what that's going to look like um, for the individual. And also the other thing that I stress is the importance of therapy and being okay with kind of just letting the process of therapy unfold and what that might look like for you and know that the therapeutic journey is unique to every individual. So it's like how I said, oh, you can be in therapy for a year or two. Um, 
someone else, you know, some people may be in therapy for a year or two. Some might be in therapy, you know, a little bit shorter or a little bit longer. But just knowing that your journey is going to be unique to you and um, just being open and willing to kind of go along for for the ride. Definitely. Um, I thank you for stressing that because, you know, in our day and age, going to therapy, it's like there's so much stigma behind it. But what therapy really is, is that you are being honest, not only with yourself, but you're also being honest with your therapist and having a good therapeutic relationship where that therapist is kind of like your cheerleader mm-hmm. or he's honest mm-hmm. he's listening yes and he's he or she the therapist is going to allow you to process everything in your own time the client yeah. time are you providing online sessions during this time yes i am awesome and you know how can our listeners get a hold of you oh sure um my website is serenitymhc.com. So serenity is S-E-R-E-N-I-T-Y-M-H-C.com. Or they can send an email to um, serenitymhw at gmail.com. Or they can call 407-986-1046. And um, yeah, I'm here and I'm available and I'm accepting um, new clients as well, all throughout the state of Florida. Awesome. Are you taking insurance or it's self-pay? I am self-pay. And so I can provide super bills for those who are seeking insurance reimbursement. Perfect. Thank you so much, um, Kalima. Thank you for having me. This was so great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. visit us at www.strivingmindsnetwork.com.